Hi, everyone, and welcome to Cassandra's Report, a podcast where we talk about ancient history for the modern world. I'm Lauren. I'm Amanda. And uh, one thing that's really exciting about this episode, at least for us, is that this is the first one we're recording after we've actually posted the first two online. So um, now we know that actually a couple people are listening to it. Uh, and we're on iTunes, which is exciting as well. Uh, so yeah, that's that's been really cool. Um, we actually even have a reader response we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, as I was saying, this might have to be a little bit of a short episode because I am uh, running off. As many of you uh, know who may have come to this podcast through my Twitter, I am a big fan of women's hockey. Um, and the home team is playing in the playoffs tonight. So I'm heading off to that. Um, I'm very excited. I'm like very pumped up about it. Uh, Lauren, the, the other night I was like at a Wednesday night trivia uh-huh. at Chumley's and they had this whole round about hockey oh. and I was like, damn it. <laughs> I would have been so useful for that. If only Lauren were here. Yeah. Um, awesome. And, and when we were, I guess it wasn't, it, it wasn't at that bar, but it was a different bar. When I was in town, there was one on like ancient gods and we were both like, yes. Yes. <laughs> and there was a hockey question, but we'd already left and I, I did not get to help the team we were helping, which was very sad. Um, oh, right. One other thing. Um, when I was listening last time, uh, there were there was a little bit of a problem, I think, with our recording equipment. So there was just like a couple of words here and there that got cut off. Um, so I'm trying something a little bit different this time. But uh, if it happens again, we'll have to switch up our equipment. Just wanted to let people listening know. Uh, we know about it. We're going to try to address it. Hopefully it won't happen this time. Um, yeah. So, oh, one more thing, which I'm super excited about. I did post about this on uh, on Twitter. So uh, the listeners have a little bit of a preview, which you do, don't have. Um, but we are starting a new um, feature. So every episode we are going to talk about um, an ancient law. And the reason that we wanted to do this is because, at least for me, one of the things that initially drew me to ancient history is that while is this this juxtaposition of things being really relatable and things being incredibly unrelatable um (laughs) and some of the incredibly unrelatable things end up sounding hilarious and absurd and i think ancient laws often have these moments of hilarious absurdity because it's so like weird to our culture yeah. Yeah. So I get to pick the first one. And Amanda, I don't think, has read this law before. Um, so uh, it'll be Amanda's turn, I guess, to surprise me next week. Um, yep. All right. So uh, the law code I went to look at uh, first is, of course, uh, the 12 tables. So this is a law code that um, existed in the earliest phase of Roman history. Um It is not extant, meaning it doesn't still exist in full form, but we have little bits of it. Um, from other writers, particularly writers on legal issues. So this is just a tiny little bit of a fragment. And obviously I'd read the 12 tables before, but I, or the fragments we have of it, but I'd never noticed this particular law. Um, which apparently says that, uh, if you think that, um, someone has stolen goods from you, uh, you can, uh, you can make a search, uh, lanke et licio, so, uh, by platter and loincloth. Now, what apparently this means is that if you suspected someone had stolen your stuff, 
you were allowed to go search their house for it, wearing a loincloth and carrying a platter. Now, the reasoning for this was, and like loincloth is kind of a a, a, a charitable word. The, the word actually, lichium actually just means thread. You wear a thread. Uh, and apparently the reason you wear a thread is so that you can't like bring stuff in with you to plant evidence. So you have to be like naked. There's, so there's nowhere to hide stuff that you bring in. And the platter, um, people have conjectured, may have been to like carry out whatever item you found. Um, mm. But apparently in the ancient sources, they say the platter is so that you can hide your face from the women. And I don't know why your face is what you need to be hiding from the women when you're wearing a thread. But that is, in fact, uh, what this law apparently uh, was supposed to have said. That's, and like That's fantastic. Right? There have been a lot of modern interpretations that are kind of like maybe dialing back the hilarity of it a little bit. But like, I just love it so much. Yeah, but we like to keep it yes. funny. So searching, searching by lamps and uh, searching by uh, by loincloth and platter, it should just be a thing. So right. that's the ancient law of the week for me. <laughs> Yay, good one. Yes. Um, all right. So I'm looking forward to doing mine. Yes, I'm really looking forward to it. Also, I know one that you're eventually going to do. Um, yes, but uh, yes, I'm, not gonna, I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not going to. No spoilers. No, I'm not going to spoil it. I'm not going to guess too hard. It has to do with. Really, really ancient Turkish animals. Oh, no. <laughs> and farm life. Yes. Uh, Amanda is definitely the one of the two of us that is interested in uh, agriculture and farms. <laughs> I'm a little afraid of it. Um, so before we get to our main topic for the day, uh, which is going to be um, how we know what we know, uh, we did get a comment from one of the listeners last week. Um, and she said, I can read it out, uh, on the condition that I mention her extremely cute gerbils, which are extremely cute. So <laughs> here's the comment from, uh, Julia. Uh, so she said, I have complicated thoughts regarding gender and power as discussed. So this is about the first episode, by the way. So I definitely agree with you regarding women not having power, but what are your thoughts on the rare forms of power women did have and how those have often been delegitimized as not really being strong or powerful? Like in modern times, for example, whenever women dominate a profession like teaching or nursing, it becomes lesser, or when social emotional intelligence is seen as manipulation, or women-oriented things like fashion are seen as frivolous. Um, so, Amanda, did you want to respond first, or do you want me to start with some thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's a good thing that, um, uh, that Julia brought this up, because it's true that I, I think we, we didn't want to come across... Uh, I think I guess we 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 failed to sort of underemphasize like the fact that you know women did have power mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, just not in a legitimate way. Right. Um, at legitimate, and by that I mean mostly legal, mm -hmm. legal way. Because I, you know, like everybody, I mean, from whether you're Queen Cleopatra, who actually well was yeah. legally had. Uh, legal power to do whatever she wanted mm -hmm. to like, you know, the housewife who's basically telling her husband what to do or giving her opinion or whatnot. Mm -hmm. So there are a whole range of, of obviously of, um, of, of uh, situations where women wield power, but mm -hmm. unless you're a ruler, um, the fact is, is that, you know, you can't legally exercise it. And that right. makes a huge difference. I actually, it reminded me of this argument I once had with this guy who was really getting on my nerves. And um, somehow we ended up talking about women's rights 
And at some point in the conversation, uh, I came, uh, you know, I said, well, you know, obviously, like, I care about the fact that it's really important that I have the right to vote. Yeah. And he was like, well, no, because it doesn't matter. Ugh. And what I what but but see, like what I came to understand is what his point was, was that like man or woman voting doesn't make a difference. But he couldn't see. So so his opinion is that voting in an election right. is useless, which is one thing. But I was trying to tell him, like, there's an absolutely huge difference between, like, you know, whether or not you think my vote is useless, that I actually have right. 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 And that there's an equality in that. Um, yeah. Okay. So there's two things I want to say. First, I'm, I will come back to this question because I do have some thoughts on it also. Um, yeah. But first, I want to see you were talking about things guys have said to you in bars. Uh, I was recently online reminded I had whatever, you know, a terrible conversation with somebody on Twitter and there was this post going around, but I was recently reminded of the time where after, uh, you, t- when a guy knew that, uh, you were doing your doctorate in Greek prehistory, uh, <laughs> said, let me see if I get this right. It was that he had, he had written an article which involved Homer. And then he asked you if you had ever read Homer. Yes. <laughs> this still like keeps know, me right? up at night. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of the great. Unfortunately, I wish we could say. I wish I could say that we don't have. You know, I don't have kind of a million stories like that. But, it's a but I feel like that one is like just anyway. like the 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 marquee like flashing lights mansplaining. Like I can't even handle it. Like <laughs> oh man. Yeah, um, for sure. For those of you maybe who are less familiar with ancient history, uh, every 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 single ancient historian has read Homer. Um, Mostly, probably in ancient Greek, uh, but people who study Greek prehistory, particularly, um, this is one of their number one literary sources. So, uh, yeah. not only had she read Homer in ancient Greek, uh, she has also taught it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, um, I, uh, but it's less, you know, I'm not a Greek prehistorian. You could, you could maybe imagine how somebody who didn't know would think a Romanist, but, uh, okay. Uh, back yeah, to Julius, yeah. back to Julius' <laughs> comment. Um, I, I hoped that we were trying to achieve a good balance between talking about the, uh, the, the, the problems with the status of women in the ancient world and also uh, the moments we do understand about power women have, right? Um, we talked about specific classes of women, even individual women that we often get to talk about in terms of uh, influential figures. But, and again, this is something that, that can be different in different contexts, right? But, um, while I totally understand the idea of reframing power, of reframing it in a less sort of patriarchal way, um, the fact is that in a lot of ancient societies, you can reframe as much as you want, and it's interesting to do so, but it doesn't mean that women had any bodily or legal autonomy. And mm-hmm. for me, that that I think is a really important point, right? Um, yeah. Again, which is not to... to to say that it's not interesting or important to look at where there was power. Um, But in in some ways, you know, if if a woman is not allowed to leave the house, if a woman is not allowed to control her own property, if a woman is not allowed to control her own body, um, it becomes, I I won't say not important, but um, I think that in a lot of ways has to kind of be at the forefront of how we talk about it. Um, Not because the other ways of thinking about power aren't interesting or important, but because, at least in my experience, often these other ways of thinking about uh, power and influence um, 
often get used by people to discount the importance of bodily and legal autonomy for women. Right. Um, yeah. So I think it's a really interesting point and an important point to bring up. And I, I hope that as yeah. this podcast goes on, we'll talk about where we can see moments of power for women. Um, right. And, and I mean, and, and that's to say that there are also a lot of, you know, of these moments that we'll never, that we'll never see, right. but probably did exist. You know, yes. like when I was saying, you know, okay, so, you know, the husband can vote. Well, maybe he's talking things through with his wife and yeah. she has like a lot of, I mean, I'm sure that that happened. Right. Right. Yeah, like, for sure. But we might never see it, but that's kind of like a, well, yeah, you know, we're intelligent human beings who like, you know, have, have power sort of like in, mm-hmm. in so many unofficial ways. Right. Um, but you know, when it's unofficial, it's, yeah, yeah it makes kind of a significant It means that, that the way the power is able to be exerted is only, um, through with men. permission. Yeah. Um, and through, through men. And, and right. And so if we're talking also about women only spaces and the role that those play, this kind of brings us to our main topic for the podcast today, yes. which is, um, how we know things about the ancient world, uh, what we don't know, and uh, why there are certain parts we know a lot less about than others. So let's get into talking about that. Um, the the actual, uh, well, I'd say I'd say the actual the word for a part of this question of how we know what we know is called historiography which is the study of history. Usually it means the study of the writing of an understanding of history. So it really much more, much more applies to the literary sources. Um, mm-hmm. But I'd say the, the four main, well, I'd say the two main categories with some subcategories of um, how we know things about the ancient world um, are literary and archeological. Right. Um, or and, maybe, maybe textual. Right. Probably. Yes. Textual yeah. and archaeological. And, right. and yeah. I think somewhere between those two categories are other things like coins and inscriptions, which sort of take. Right. Which kind of. Have foot like, and have feet in both camps. Foots. Have, have right. feet <laughs> in both <laughs> camps, right? That, yeah. that they yeah. are textual in some ways, but the methods of transmission are much more archaeological than textual. So right. let's talk a little bit about both of those. Um, I think you guys probably can guess who's going to be talking more about the archaeology and who's going to be talking more about the textual sources, <laughs> which is in no way to say that Amanda could not talk about the textual sources if she wanted. It's to say no, that I cannot talk about the archaeological say. sources uh, well if I wanted. So do you want to start with archaeology a little bit? Sure. Um, okay, so archaeology literally means like the study of old things, and the key being the the key, you know, here being things. Like uh, archaeology is the study of material culture, um, meaning anything that's basically tangible. Um, so you know, from you know nail polish to a table to a wall um, to a temple. Um, to a button, you know, so all of those things, um, are essentially the, you know, the, the, the lines in the text of archaeology, right? And what we do, um, is essentially try to draw conclusions about the way in which people lived based on the things, uh, that are, that, that they have left, um, for us. Now, sometimes, like, if you're super lucky, although for them super unlucky, uh, you get like a destruction zone, for example, Pompeii, and where everything is beautifully preserved just the way that it was yes. when, you know, they were going about their like 
happy lives. Uh, but most of the time, we uh, what we're looking through essentially is the trash that's left over. Um, but if you think about it, like, you know, I guess there's probably a reason why creepy stalkers look through your trash. <laughs> um, <laughs> Archaeology, professional yeah. creepy stalking of dead people. Exactly, exactly. That's because you can tell a hell of a lot. Um, and you can tell what people own, what people eat. And yes, amazingly enough, we actually can recover these days. We do recover things like seeds um, and anything sort of like organic that might give us an idea of their diet. And then it's all sort of uh, studied. Archaeology today is kind of like, you know, a, a lot of different specialties involved. Um, but the idea is that, you know, very simply that if you look at you know, if you if you look at, you know, if you think of your own house, like there there are certain things um, that you don't really think about it. But to somebody who's looking at you 2000 years later would tell us a whole lot. For example, you know, um, like having uh, a, some China, a China, a set of like China tea set. Right. right? Um that is made in China. That means that you are communicating with China somehow. Mm -hmm. There is trade with China. Um, then, like, you know, you might notice that in a lot of houses digging up, there's, like, you know, uh, this thing that today we call a computer, but in others, there are not. Mm -hmm. um, in those houses, they happen to have, like, a, a, a higher sort of level of wealth. So, like, you know, you might find... Uh, silver like cutlery instead of like regular old metal or plastic cutlery mm -hmm. little things like that um, can give you a lot of information about socioeconomic status um, religious beliefs mm -hmm. uh, okay so you know if any of you are religious and have crosses hanging around or things like that um, you know you might find that in a few houses and then we find say a completely different uh, symbol, um, you know, uh, that might reflect another religion. So we know that there are two religions uh, coexisting side mm -hmm. by side. And all of those little things, like, um, give us a lot of information about the kind of society that you live in. Um, also, the level of, you know, even just the very organization of of space, you know, even today, like if you go in different um, to different countries, oftentimes you'll notice like small differences in the way that space is organized within the house. You know, so, for example, like if my house, if uh, I was uh, digging up my house, you know, I'm open to the possibility that this could be a government building, this could be a home, this could be a temple, this could be, a, you know, mm -hmm. so many different things. Um, as I dig it up, right, I, I I find that there's like an entranceway and then there's kind of a large room and then there's sort of this other room with cooking utensils. Um, no uh, hearths these there. days, though. Huh? No hearth these days, unfortunately. No, no hearth. Um, and then I go upstairs and I see some individual rooms. Now, I'm more likely to see that uh, and combined with the kinds of materials that I find inside, I'm more liable perhaps to sort of conclude that, you know, this looks like a domestic setting mm -hmm. as opposed to me digging up a church. OK, and realizing that clearly it's this big open space mm -hmm. that would accommodate 
you know, more than like 10 people. Um, and it's full of symbols that I keep finding in other places and other places, mm-hmm. people's homes and things like that. So little by little, you kind of piece these things together. And one of the great things about archaeology is that in some ways, uh, it tells us a lot about um, everyday living. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that was one thing, actually, that I, I wanted to, to bring up, because one thing I definitely did not realize about archaeology before I got to grad school was that it's not all just, like, digging up houses, right? No. I feel like the idea of, like, landscape and survey archaeology was really new to me, so maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, definitely. Um, in the last, like, uh, 40, 50 years, um, you know, everybody knows what an excavation kind of looks like. That's when, you know, you're digging stuff up. But we've also um, developed a new method called archaeological survey, which essentially, because one of the problems, I mean, of course, we kind of, um, you know, for most archaeological sites, we get to see sort of like the everyday lives. But most of the time, unfortunately, those everyday lives are the lives of people who are probably higher up on the socioeconomic scale than anybody else. And that's sadly not necessarily I mean, partially it's an issue of like interest. Everybody wants to like Mm -hmm. dig up a palace or a fancy tomb. But partly it's also because finding, you know, uh, uh, finding funding um, for archaeological digs is really difficult. And unfortunately, if you're like, hey, I want to dig up a farmhouse, um, it's unfortunately the case that you're going to have a harder time uh, finding funding. Right. So, so, so the end result is that, you know, about 50 years ago, people started saying, well, you know, okay, great. Like we have these palaces and these tombs and everything, but we have no idea what's going on, you know, among kind of like the pantry, among like the lower classes, mm-hmm. right? Like how do we, and we know a lot of information about only a few places. Um, so, uh, they developed this technique called archaeological survey, where essentially it's a lot of fun. <laughs> you get For to you. line up. You, you, yeah, you get to line up. It's usually teams of about ten to fifteen people or less, uh, and you line up in side by side with about ten meters between each other because the you know your your vision range is about five meters on either side, um, and then we start walking through the landscape in parallel lines. And what we're doing is we're looking at the ground because amazingly enough, um, uh, if there was a site somewhere now, obviously, if you find like, oh, here's a column and like, a, you know, a wall looks like, you know, that's pretty obvious. But actually, most of the sites that we find in survey archaeology are <clears throat> are just essentially a bunch of pottery left on the ground. So you'll be walking, you'll be walking and there's like piece of pottery here, piece of pottery there. And then it's like, whoa, there's like pottery everywhere. Um, and is that because of like uh, stirring up the ground from farming? Yes, exactly. It's like it's it's kind of a combination of different things. It's a lot of it is uh, stuff that's been plowed mm-hmm. and like brought back up to the surface over centuries and centuries and centuries. Also, partly like erosion, mm-hmm. like any modification to the landscape that's been done in the last, you know, how many years like thousands of years um uh tend to bring this pottery up onto the ground it's actually really amazing because you can feel the difference so okay. one minute sorry hold on one second nothing. your voice is getting very robot really yeah like there's might like, like some sort of okay try again can you now is it better um we can keep going the listeners be aware that amanda is starting to sound a little electronic but 
sorry. It's not your fault. I mean, it um, might be the connection or something. Anyway, sorry. Keep going. Yeah, that's weird. Um, yeah, so so it, it's really amazing because all this pottery comes up on the surface, and we use pottery to uh, stylistically to date um, our finds. So, so we can essentially what? Do I still sound like a robot? You do, but I was actually going to say that I have for the last like what like ten years now been constitutionally yes. oh. unable not to make a joke every time you say you're dating pottery. Right. And like she, that, this is one of the major things that she does. And every single time, I'm like, "Oh, did you ask it out?" Like, I, I can't stop. I cannot stop myself. Okay, sorry. Keep going. Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah, so I do date Potter. Thank you very much. And I have, you know, thousands of thousands of different dates for you. <laughs> but um, but yeah. So. We we look at the pottery, we date it, and then we can – and usually these small – usually they're small sites. Um, you can tell because kind of the, 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 the spread of the pottery. And so what you come up with at the end of, like, a season, right, where you surveyed, like, several, like, square miles of land, uh, is a map that shows you, like, basically where – all sites are now depending on the stuff that you find at the sites, like the type of pottery, you know, the dating and everything. You can sometimes like surmise like that maybe this this looks like it's probably like a very small like maybe a farmstead or a farmhouse. You know, um, others you may say, oh, you know, there might be something like more going on. Sometimes you actually find real big sites where you're thinking, wow, there's like a mini town here for sure. Um, so. That way, we kind of like get to um, uh, have some kind of notion of what's happening in the countryside, mm-hmm. uh, despite the fact that we don't have time or money to like excavate, you know, every single one of those sites. Okay. So, although actually, in in this in, now, you know, survey has also actually become like one of the ways of finding new sites to excavate, because obviously, when you come across like a really big site. Um, you know, you might be interested in doing more and might actually be able to get funding yeah. for it. <clears throat> okay, so yeah, tell tell us a little bit about the limits um, of archaeology. Like, how does yeah. it, how does it how does it um, bias the way we understand the ancient world based on what we have? Well, I mean, I think that one of the ways in which um, one of one of the biggest problems that we face when you're looking at archaeology is that it's extremely easy to talk about socioeconomics, right? Mm-hmm. It's easy to say, um, this stuff was imported from here. We have exchange here. Um, this place looks like, wow, they were really rich or they were really poor. Uh, because, you know, material, because, you know, as we say today, right? Like material possessions in some way define, right? Mm-hmm. Our, uh, so much of our status, like our economic status and social status. So that's kind of like the go-to thing, right? That's one thing that we can kind of, kind of latch on to. It's like, you know, uh, compare sort of different finds in that uh, with that particular question mm-hmm. in mind. Where it becomes difficult is, you know, <laughs> you know, trying to understand like symbolic meanings and like, yeah anything that involves like belief systems, which isn't impossible. I mean, you know, when we find, you know, tons of religious sites, well, what seem to be religious sites with, 
like bull figure figurines all over the place. Well, clearly, you know, there's belief in some kind of, like, you know, power associated with bulls. So like we can say some of these basic things, but it's also difficult sometimes to interpret um, sort of the more ideological aspect of what we're finding. And uh, isn't it, I mean, yeah. I, again, I'm not an archaeologist. I can only have, say, I've read some archaeological stuff that, that, pretty much any time we're not sure what something is we consider it uh, yes. ritual yeah 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 i was just gonna say that okay yeah the joke in archaeology is that if you have no freaking clue of what it is it's ritual <laughs> i literally this isn't even a joke it it really is i mean it's it's a joke within like the archaeological community mm-hmm. but it's 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 really it's like extra funny because we all know that it's actually true. right. Um, you know, it's like what is this? It's like it must be ritual. Right. <laughs> you can't figure out concrete use. You're like uh, weird belief systems. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. So those are some of the limits, and you know, and obviously we also don't get a complete picture either because mm-hmm. we're looking at a lot of times we're looking at what people left behind, like. Some, in some cases, purposefully, mm-hmm. like in burials, for example, or uh, what they left behind without, you know, it being pers- purposeful at all, which, you know, in some ways, some people think that that is the most valuable because then there's no sort of bias in terms of what's being. But that's that's, you know, but the, that's a simplistic sort of understanding of things right. because. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, you know, so archaeology isn't perfect. But are you really? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Shocking. It's terrible. Um, but it's totally more perfect than history. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Fighting words. Um, so, okay, I guess that, that's a good lead in for me talking a little bit about our textual sources. Um, so I think people are a little bit more familiar with, with what they are, right? We have, uh, we have poetry. We have uh, people who wrote history. We have people who wrote speeches. We have people who wrote plays. Um, we have, um, on the more uh, archaeological side of textual stuff, we have inscriptions that include things like law codes and tombstones, and we have coins with pictures and names on them and stuff like that. Um, so we do have a really wide variety of, uh, of information, um, some of it which purports to be non-fictional, um, although what they consider uh, history and what they consider um, science is very different than what modern people consider history and science. Um, but there's also things like novels and plays that we, like people do for uh, modern literature, people read um, to understand culture rather than necessarily to understand what happened to a particular person um, mm-hmm. in the course of time. Um but yeah, there, so there there are two major ways that uh, we are we are limited by uh, our textual sources. I would say mm-hmm. um, the first uh, sort of bottleneck in terms of how we uh, are, the ability to learn about the ancient world from our literary sources um, is who was writing them. Uh, so this kind of goes back a bit to what Julia was uh, talking about at the beginning is that in a lot of ways we just don't have knowledge about a lot of different populations uh, from the ancient world. Um, it should surprise pretty much no one that the people that were writing were overwhelmingly rich and male. Um, <laughs> we have, uh, we have, I'd say the only writer we have who is female in the ancient world who isn't 
really fragmentary, I'd say, is Sappho, the lyric poet from uh, archaic Greece, um, who is pretty famous, right? That's where we get... From Lesbos. What? Yeah, from Lesbos, and because she wrote about women in a romantic way, that's where we get the word lesbian. Um, I feel like I've heard some stories about, like, lesbian cruises going to the island of Lesbos, and then being like, nah, uh nope, you got that (laughs) wrong. But uh, anyway, that is where the word comes from. Uh, We do have fragments of other women writers, mostly poets, I'd say. We have... uh, two and a half poems by a Roman poet named Sulpicia. I think we have some fragments from people like Corinna um, and other uh, Greek poets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we know of other women who wrote things. Uh, right. Who are mentioned by others. Right. Who are mentioned by others. Um, I think mostly who on the sort of uh, philosophical, scientific, rhetorical side, I don't know if we have as much information about women writing fiction. I know we have at least some right. indication of women writing plays. Maybe not in, like, Greece or Italy proper, but I think in North Africa and stuff, there's some evidence yeah. of that. But um, we have practically no... And, and again, I think I mentioned also in the first episode, we have some stuff from the Christian period, um, even mm-hmm. early on, that are that is either written by or... Um, or influenced by uh, women, uh, told by women to others. Um, But what that means is that we have no real ability to access women's voices and thoughts from the ancient world. We have a lot written about women. Um, There are a lot of particularly... (laughs) Hey, Pugsley. Uh Oh, God, somebody's at the door. Oh, no. All right. Uh, We'll be right back. Oh, no, no, it's okay. Hold on. I'm going to close the door. Okay. All right. Uh, That was a good hello from Pugsley, who is outraged at the lack of women authors in the ancient world. Um, All right. I'm back. All right. It's okay. So, uh, yeah, there there are, especially when we're reading about women, and, like, there, you know, if you teach a course on women in the ancient world, there are tons of texts to assign. There are especially plays like Antigone, like Medea, which we will talk about at some point, that are about women and sometimes very sympathetic to women. But um, it's always important to remember that these are plays written by men, performed by men, with the audience probably made up of men. So yeah. everything we know about women from almost almost everything we know about women from the ancient world in the textual sense comes from men pretending to be them, from men talking about them, from men um, giving women a voice, which is not the same thing as women having voices. So um, that's extremely limiting. Um, and it's not only women that uh, are denied sort of a voice in the sources. Um, certainly people who were not literate, um, which, which is a, like a lot. most people, um, and <laughs> which is most of the population. Yes. Although I, I do want to point that there isn't a direct correlation. I mean, there is some correlation, but there isn't as firm a correlation as you might think between literacy and wealth in the ancient world. Um, partly right. because what yeah. we kind of mentioned last time is that often uh, careers, which required literacy, right. Um, teaching, uh, medicine, which required some literacy, maybe, um, uh, uh, dictation, accounting, uh, were often jobs performed by slaves, um, yep. and, and other lower class people. So, uh, we do, for example, have, uh, an author who was a freed slave, uh, Terence, the, um, uh, the, the playwright of se- second century Rome, second century BC. So one of the earliest Latin writers we have was a former slave. Um, we, we have writers from all over the ancient Mediterranean, not limited to Greece and Italy, but, uh, genuinely from pretty much every part 
of the ancient Mediterranean, we can imagine, at certainly at different points um, right. in, in the thing. But one other major way that we are limited um, in terms of literary sources is uh, what languages lent themselves or had a tradition of, of literature, right? So we don't have people, uh, we don't have Gauls writing um, in a period before they have been conquered by Rome, right? We don't have writings from societies before they are conquered by Greece and Rome for the most part, um, because there's much less of a tradition um, of literary output by those people. Um, partly, oh, partly because of that and partly because a lot of the languages uh, were not always re readable. Like, for example, we know that uh, Etruscan, uh, there were things written in Etruscan, um, a weird a civilization we don't know a whole lot about in Italy. Um, but the last person we know that was able to read Etruscan was the Emperor Claudius. So once the language is lost, there's much less ability to pass on uh, right. texts. Although, I mean, you know, the, the first literature that, you know, dates to, like, you know, the second millennium, with like, you oh, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. still conventional of that. I, I, you know? I feel like I, was, I meant that kind of more like, uh, West, like the West, like Western Europe, oh, right, yeah. because obviously that is not at all the case for, for the East, right? Where right. there was Aramaic, there was Hebrew, there was, uh, yeah. all <laughs> many, many, many language traditions of literature that are completely and totally, um, yes. Right. No, I, 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 yeah. Very good point. Thank you for pointing <laughs> that out. That is definitely not what I meant. Uh, in fact, parchment was invented in Pergamum. Yes, but parchment sucks. Right. Like I was just reading um, in preparation for this episode uh, and the next part I was going to talk about, I was reading about the, the transmission of literature from the ancient world and um, papyrus, which was uh, from Egypt, invented in Egypt and continued to be made in Egypt, was by far the better uh, writing yeah. surface and mm -hmm. only really stopped being the main way that people wrote um, and who turned to parchment, which is made from um, animal skins, animal skins. Um, which is much more expensive um, but more mm -hmm. available um, when there was a dry up of, of whether because of um, supply issues or whether because uh, it was being made less when there was a, a parchment problem coming from Egypt. So it actually brings right. me to the second point. So our first major bottleneck of what we know is who wrote in the ancient world. But our second major bottleneck is who got passed on. So this is a really interesting story. And this is something I think a lot of people don't necessarily know. Um, mm -hmm. Most of the texts we have from the ancient world were not like written on stone and buried and found somewhere, right? <laughs> or even written on papyrus and buried in Egypt. Although we do have some uh, fragments of literature on papyrus from like garbage heaps in Egypt, yeah. because Egypt has a climate that is particularly well suited to uh, mm -hmm. preserving that kind of stuff. The vast majority of the literature we have um, is stuff that was uh, copied and recopied uh, through uh, late antiquity and the Middle Ages primarily by um, uh, monks and uh, other sort of religious authorities. Yeah. So Islamic and Jewish scholars. Yes, right. Yeah. So there's, there's, I think, also a little bit of a weird perception of how that works. I think that a lot of people seem to think that there's, there was like some monk sitting there being like, this is an inappropriate text and we will not copy it. And that really does not seem to be um, how it worked. Uh, there was definitely some sense of uh, when when Christian authorities came in of of disapproval of some texts, but um, mm -hmm. there isn't really any evidence that that resulted in them not getting copied. 
Um, it seems that the biggest bottleneck right, of actually got burned. No, <laughs> no, apparently the only text, and I was just reading about this, the, the text that the Christians. No, I know, I know, I know. Most didn't. But no, the text, did. the text that the Christians burned were almost all heretical Christian texts. They were really into burning each other's books, but not like Homer. Mm-hmm. Everyone's kind of fine with that. Um, oh, good. Yeah, no, it was really, oh, that's something that I feel like I, I hadn't been super aware of. And, and also like even like the whole idea of like the library of Alexandria being burned by the Christians is also not actually true. Um, mm. it, it, there was one library in Alexandria. But they did, but they did burn the, what, the, the Serapeans? But that wasn't because there were books in it. It was burned because they were in the middle of like three different riots. Um, it was not because it was a repository of books. Um, and in fact, even the Library of Alexandria, um, which does seem to have gotten damaged, uh, not completely burned, but damaged in Caesar's attack on Egypt, um, uh, seems to have continued for a long time after that. What, Mm-hmm. Um, although obviously at some point mm-hmm. it stops being, um, supported by the state and stops having, um, you know, support. Um, mm-hmm. what actually seems to have been the biggest reason that certain texts weren't copied, um, and, and the biggest bottleneck actually seems to have been between the, the sixth and eighth centuries, um, yeah. was what texts were not really commonly used in teaching because, mm-hmm. uh, pagan quote unquote pagan texts end up being given their importance as teaching tools. Um, which is kind of why we have right. a lot of texts that are like, really? Like Quintilian. No offense to people who like Quintilian, who is a Silver Age rhetorician. Like, kind of boring, honestly. <laughs> like, he's not my favorite. But we have lots of Quintilian, uh, because it was the kind of stuff that was really interesting to people that were teaching. So that's one of the major yeah. ways that we have stuff. Like, so one of the, the, um, the kinds of texts that we have that I find really interesting is, um, the Greek plays, the Greek dramas, uh, we yeah. have a best of, of each of the three. And that clearly seems to have been from when they, uh, they sort of whittled down, uh, the plays by each author for like teaching. But mm-hmm. we also have a ton more plays by Euripides than we do by, by Aeschylus and Sophocles. Uh, because in addition to the like matching best of, um, we also have one other volume. That seems to have been, I, I love this, I always show this to my students, I put the, the titles of the plays up on the PowerPoint and see if they can figure out um, what, the, what the commonality is, <laughs> is that clearly there was a complete collection of Euripides with the plays in alphabetical order. And it seems like the second volume uh. <laughs> um, seems to have just gotten copied, right? It's all the plays that start with like I, J, K, H. Um, it's clearly, uh, one volume of a complete collection of alphabetical order that we just happen to have. Yeah. Uh, so I think that kind of points to one that often it is, uh, for teaching reasons that stuff gets kept, but also it's chance. It's like random chance, like God knows why. And, and, um, for, for Tacitus, um, there's bits missing that would have been really, really interesting bits. I think it's the parts about Caligula. Um, and mm-hmm. one of, um, one of our professors once suggested, like, probably it was a really interesting volume and someone took it off the shelf and it never made it back, um, and never <laughs> got copied. Like, these are the kinds yeah. of things that sometimes happen, um, which is yeah, incredibly frustrating. One of the other things that happens, and this is horrifying, I like had to, I was, um, at a coffee shop with my friend David, who has been listening to these, and uh, he like was like, oh God, what's wrong? You just put your book down and like looked so upset. Um, and it's because I was reading about palimpsests, which is where um, uh, yeah. there were books uh, mm-hmm. that uh, that had ancient texts on them, 
but that uh, it was too valuable. Like parchment, again, because when parchment became the thing rather than papyrus, it was much more expensive. It was very limiting in what could be copied and what could be kept. So when there would be like a need to recopy Jerome fucking again, no offense to Jerome, yeah. <laughs> um, they would just wash off um, what was already mm-hmm. on the, the paper. Uh, so right. uh, we have some text that we, we are able to read, uh, mostly with the aid of some modern technology, that had been washed off and had other things written on top of them. And one of the things, for example, that um, only exists in Palimpsest is uh, Cicero's De Republica, which is a text I work with a lot. So, oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, actually, and, and there was another one of Cicero's texts, too. It's like, God, I mean, of all the people you think that they want to keep Cicero, but it's not like these people knew that this was the only copy that existed, right? Right. Uh, exactly. This is not something That's that they knew. So there's a really interesting process of um, understanding um, where stuff was kept, when it got rediscovered in the Renaissance. Um, right. And, and, one and, of the- what, and what's deemed sort of interesting at the time mm-hmm. or important right and which what, what, obviously so yeah you what know. gets taught and and also interesting is some of the places some of the locuses for like text getting kept right we talked a little bit last time about how um a lot of um a lot of our medical and scientific texts get kept in arabic right uh mm-hmm. that is something that is for example galen aristotle uh, a lot of the arabic scholars were particularly interested in that we have a lot of uh, we don't have a lot of texts that are only in Arabic still left, but we do have some, particularly Aristotle, that only existed through the period in Arabic. And also Ireland. The monks in Ireland, for some reason, were super into uh, recopying texts. very prolific. Yeah, so um, Ireland and a lot of the uh, monasteries founded in the tradition of the monasteries in Ireland, like Monte Cassino, um, Mm -hmm. end up being, like, really big repositories for texts that end up being refound in the Renaissance. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't you have a Monte Cassino story? Well, Monte Cassino is where where my my dad is from. Right. <laughs> Basically, um, very close to, uh, well, it's about twenty minutes from where I live, and unfortunately, it's where the Germans decided to take residence yeah. uh, when they were in the area. And so, despite the fact that, granted, I understand that well, the Germans were there, yeah. but this is an eighth century uh. CE monastery yep. we're talking about. I mean, 8th century, and it was still in use. Yep. And the freaking Americans had to bomb it. Yeah. I think, one thing I think I always find... Granted, I get yes. it. The Germans were like, there. Was, there was a good seriously? reason. But, um, and like, but that's, but they, they did it on purpose, right? The same thing happened with the Parthenon, right? People were yeah. storing weapons there because they no, knew exactly. it was something they that would be, purpose. like, yeah. uh, that would be yeah. repellent to people wanting to bomb it. You, and I think a lot of people would be surprised at how much destruction... Um, of, maybe not anymore. I think that 10 years ago, people would have been really surprised at how much destruction of ancient monuments happened really in modern times, uh, mm-hmm. in, in the last hundred years. I think now people are less surprised. I can't even talk about it, given what's gone on in Syria. I know, exactly. And uh, <laughs> the area is controlled by the Taliban, where yeah. there was destruction of Buddhist um, statues yeah. and destruction of so much yeah, or Syrian... Just, or just make it- you know, making your base camps on yeah. ancient archaeological sites yeah. that are protected by, you know, UNESCO right. or something um, so that there will be more issues with, you know, bombing yeah. it. And that's just, yeah. And unfortunately, I feel like it always ends up going like, 
always does end up getting destroyed. So really, that technique doesn't really work. I feel yeah. like they should give that up. But they don't care. <laughs> it's so awful. Anyway, okay, we, 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 need, we need to end this podcast on something less horribly depressing than the loss of all of the archaeological heritage we have lost in the last five years, which has been uh, yeah. a tremendous amount. What's cheery? Give me some good news. It's cheery. Well, hey, I I wanted to say stop. Can I give you the first, um, and this is where archaeology and text meet, yes. or an example of it. Actually, the earliest uh, uh, Greek alphabetic uh, inscription mm-hmm. or writing at all was found on uh, a Greek in a Greek colony uh, off the coast of Naples yes. uh, called Pethekusai. Yes. And it was a cup, and they call it the Cup of Nestor. Oh, I love this. So it was a cup that was inscribed. Um, it dates to about 750 BCE, and its inscription reads, Nestor's cup I am, good to drink from. Whoever drinks this cup empty, straight away the desire of beautiful crowned Aphrodite will cease. <laughs> and, it's, and it's in meter. Um, yes, which we can talk about what it's, 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 in, it's poetry. And one of the things I feel like I talk yeah. about this all the time, I, I'm really interested in the beginning of writing um, in each culture. And I think one of the things that I find so fascinating, we kind of mentioned this last time, right, that it tells you something about a culture, what the first texts we find in that mm-hmm. that language are from. Uh, like we talked about how in Egypt, it's a lot of religious texts. And in um, Mesopotamia, we have a lot of uh, transactional texts. And I love right. that the first example of 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 <laughs> ancient Greek writing, not counting Mycenaean stuff, is poetry. I find that yeah. so phenomenal. That's the first thing that they did when they figured out how to write it down. Um, I know, and I love I love that quote because, like, I always show it to my students, mm-hmm. and I'm like, see. Some things never change. Yeah. Although one thing, I, maybe um, I'll, I'll post a picture of the cup of Nestor actually on the on the yeah. Twitter um, because yeah. on the Twitter on our Twitter, I guess <laughs> not like on the Twitter like <laughs> the anyway. Twitter. Um, but one of the things that's actually also really cool about it um, is that while in many ways it's recognizable um, to us as writing and as poetry, um, it also shows that it's a period of time where writing had not become standardized yet, um, and the writing is is uh, actually right to left, not left to right. Mm-hmm. Um, which is not yeah. something that became standardized for a long time. And my favorite kind of writing, which was often found in uh, partic- in, in early Greek and early Latin, is called boustrophodon, um, oh, right. which is uh, – it actually means something about cows, right? Like cow writing? Anyway. Yeah. Uh, but uh, what it is, it's when yeah. the one line goes left to right, the next one goes right to left, then left to right, then right to left. So it's actually – it's really <laughs> – it, 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 it should theoretically be easier for the eye, but it is in fact not. <laughs> Yeah, no, that would be so, yeah. yeah. But anyway, so so I'll post some pictures of the Cup of Nestor and of Boustrophodon writing, um, just so you guys can see what we're talking about. Um, but one, oh, did you still have no, no. some stuff to say? Oh, yeah, okay, because there was just one thing I wanted to say about transmission, mm-hmm. and that's, and that's, like, the, because as, you know, as Lauren just said, like, we have, a lot of it, I mean, almost all of it, we, have, we rarely have, like, original copies mm-hmm. of anything. Um, so it's all been, like, written and rewritten mm-hmm. and rewritten. And so, and I, I think it's important to think about what that does. Mm-hmm. Because when you're, 
we're talking, so one month, you know, we're not talking typing here. I mean, typing errors occur. Imagine, um, you know, all the mistakes that you can make. You could, for example, miss a line, an entire line. Yeah. Especially you if could, the two lines um, start with the same word. If anybody's ever tried right. to copy stuff out, and I would tell this to my students, like, it's amazing. Like, try to copy out a piece of paper, and you'll notice how easy it is to make errors. Right. So, and, you know, you could leave word out or change, you know, the spelling of the word mm -hmm. and all these things, like in some ways, you know, I tell my students, OK, these things, when I'm saying this to you, like you're probably thinking, well, oh, uh, well, what's mm -hmm. the big deal? You know, well, it's actually a huge deal because like when you think about actually, for example, there's a lot of there's um, a controversy over the fact that in the Bible, um, when the Red Sea is mentioned, mm -hmm. the Moses crossed the Red Sea. Um, now, it just so happens that there's also a similarity between the two words in English, mm -hmm. but that the translation should actually be the read right. sea, in which case we're talking about sort of like a little swamp area um, that's also between, you know, the Egypt and the Middle East. So that would be perfectly yeah. fine. Um, and so that kind of makes a tremendous difference. Um, if you... Uh, you know, if you're talking, you know, if you say, oh, sometimes that's the thing. Problems with faulty translations. Yeah. Right. So like, um, you know, if you say these people live simply and have no valuables. Mm -hmm. OK. And then I translate it to like, you know, say these people live simply and have no values. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because like, you know, that's something I'm bilingual. And that's that's a word, for example, that often I have found that people will get like confused, the two of those. So, you know. These things can actually like, you know, so imagine these kinds of errors yeah. and the problems of interpretation they create in something as important as the Bible or the Quran in our society. Mm -hmm. Right. Especially when people are so obsessed right. with literally interpreting yeah. the Bible, and especially when they don't even read it in the original language. It's so upsetting. People need to just get onto there. And there was a there was a, a story recently about um, a, uh, a White House advisor. Uh, who is has a PhD in something or other and is billed as an expert on like Islamic issues and doesn't read Arabic, reads right. all of his sources in translation, and like oh gosh, I, this this hurts my heart. I mean, as a layperson, like I get it, but like if you're an academic, yeah. then and if you're advising yeah, you the freaking president. Up. Like yeah. get get a little bit of direct knowledge. Anyway, um, we were back to sad. I wanted to end on happy. Like yeah. Master's Cup. Um, yeah, and then like omission, you know, mm -hmm. same thing, like omitting a sentence can have huge, yeah. like, uh, you know, like if you say slavery has existed for thousands of years, um, uh, in the 19th century abolition movements finally began to get rid of this, you know, this injustice, mm -hmm. um, and it's essential that we continue this tradition. If you get rid of the middle, sentence there you get slavery resistance for thousands of years it is essential that we continue this tradition right, <laughs> right? so like <laughs> i mean you can lose yeah uh you can lose a lot for sure so so yeah so things to things to think about uh, and again we'll, we'll touch about. on these i mean i feel like the the idea of source bias and transmission bias are things that we both think about without even thinking about a lot right. so we might not always be explicit in talking about it but it is something we're always considering um when we yeah. talk about pretty much any topic. Right. Um, all right. So I think that we can end it there. Ended up not being such a short one after all. Yeah. Um, so uh, please <laughs> come really find us on Twitter uh, at Cassandra's pod. You can now rate us on iTunes and that would be super exciting. 
Um, and you can also, if you have longer comments or questions, email us at cassandraspod at gmail.com. Um, so we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for listening. It's great to, you know, see people putting up yes, comments and stuff. For sure. All right. All right. Bye. See you next time.